Renee Ritchie. John Gruber. From, from Mymore. How, how long was your Iowa State review? Uh, 21,000 words. What? <laughs> Holy shit. Yeah, 200 pictures. I, I, I need to be put down. 21,000 words. You know, and I mean this sincerely, not just because... Um, not just because you're the guest on the show, but for years I, I've been thinking, man, wouldn't it be great if if somebody wrote iOS reviews each year the way John Syracuse does Mac OS X reviews? And I realized that you do. Like they're all there. They're there all the way back to iOS two. Yeah. And there are, you know, it was just called like iPhone OS two or something yeah. like that. Uh and they are Book length, twenty one thousand words. Seriously, that's more closer to a book than an article. I just, I, I always feel this need to explain things as if you know, because Apple gives us WWDC sessions and they give us keynotes, but the keynotes are fast and the WWDC sessions are super geeky. And I just picture my mom or my dad really wanting to find out what's going on and trying to write that for them. <laughs> that's true. I don't know. It, it's you know, it, 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 Apple's. These OS updates are getting well. They've always been deep, but like iOS seven to iOS eight, there is so much. And from a marketing perspective, Apple really just can't cover it in detail. They can't publish twenty one thousand words about it, you know. And it's it it's like they're moving so effectively year over year that it's it is. I, I think it's truly a challenge to keep up. You know, I, I take the Syracuse thing as a huge compliment. I can't say that I. I'm anywhere nearly as competent as he are, he is to write these things, but I think that's exactly exactly it. They are so, especially something like extensibility and how it works, and the container apps and the host apps and how the security and privacy is handled are really complicated topics. And I, I watch those sessions four or five times each because I want to understand them better. And the writing process is sort of me digesting and figuring out what it all means. Yeah, I I almost mean it the other way. I do mean it as a compliment. I mean it as a profound compliment. But I almost worry that the way that I pose it, that I say, hey, it took me years to realize this, that we already had somebody doing it, and it's you. I almost worry that that comes across as an insult because I say it took me years to realize it. And I think, and I don't mean it as an insult in any way, but I do think that maybe the reason it didn't dawn on me right away is that your style is so much more understated. It is a very, you know, you personally are almost out of the picture. And it's a, I know that this word in, in terms of journalism is grossly overused, but it's a much more objective viewpoint. And with Syracuse, he's always there, right? It is, it's, it's Mac OS X reviews very specifically um, from his perspective and, and as it pertains to his obsessions. Well, he's got an amazing uh, authorial voice. I mean, you can he, he talks the way that he writes and you just you always know it's exactly John. And I I have my biases. I try to state my biases up front and own them. Uh, but I think it, there's just so much to cover that I have to get out of my own way when I do it. Yeah, I totally agree. So a lot of writing. <laughs> and it puts it's good because this way I can have someone on the show who wrote more than I did this week. <laughs> Yeah, those, uh, especially the watch piece uh, and the iPhone review, those were amazing. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Thank you. It was both. And, I, you know, I really did write them both in one waking day from like around one in the afternoon till 6 a.m., uh, just one after another. I had, been, I had notes all over the place from, you know, 
the eight days prior. I mean, it's certainly like I didn't, I didn't start writing in a vacuum, but I just, all I had were notes and, and wrote them both. And I think they were both like a little over 4,000 words. So like 8,000 words in one working day, which is needless to say unusual. Well, I like the watch one, especially because we've had people who cover smartwatches write about them. And we've had people like from Hodaki who do cover watches write about them. But you made a, a really salient point in your piece that, that these two cultures are going to clash in the middle. And you poked some fun at my friend Phil Nickinson yesterday, and <laughs> rightly so, because he was saying that you know the $70 watch band was a hefty price. And people have no idea what's coming when these two industries merge, I think. You see, I put a, I posted a clarification yes. on that today and and the point because i think it was i could i think it was misinterpreted where uh, i'm not cheerleading or clapping or or smugly sitting with my arms folded about the idea of multi-thousand dollar apple watches uh, i'm just saying i think that that's what's coming whether you like it or not whether you have a strong opinion on it or not whether you think that's cool whether you think it's ridiculous or preposterous um but i do think and again, like something like a band that costs $500. If you think that's hefty, I would, I would agree. That's, that's, you know, I don't think no matter what your income of, of three, four, five hundred $500 band, just the band is, you know, hefty, hefty is a decent word for that. Um, and you know, it's like I, I, in my research for the watch piece, I was looking at things like, what does it cost to get like a, an actual Rolex, uh, stainless steel, not no precious metals, but stainless steel, replacement band and they they sell for at least $2,500 because I think the ones you can find online are sort of gray market um, because you know authorized dealers for Rolex and other brands like that don't advertise prices but let's just say that's in the ballpark Um, if you want to think that that's uh, exorbitant I I, I'd see exactly what you mean I may not necessarily agree but I can totally see the reason of somebody, like I could say that's a reasonable position to take that nobody should buy a watch that the band alone costs $2,500. Totally reasonable. It's I, I don't necessarily agree, but it's reasonable. But $80? $80 is right there smack in the middle of the, the mainstream watch market. You know, it, that's absolutely true. I have another friend, uh, Kevin, and he collects watches. He has six or seven. He has like Omegas and Panerais and Rolexes and, and other brands whose names escape me. But when he first heard about the Apple Watch, he loves technology. And he, he said, though, he was not going to buy one unless they had one that was in the thousands of dollars because it it wasn't the kind of watch that he was interested in. And now when he read your piece specifically, he said that it made him even more inclined to buy it. And he's like, you know, frankly, the more expensive they get, the more appealing that is to him as someone who loves watches. Yeah. Well, anyway, we're only a couple minutes in, but it's impossible for us in one show, even by the the ever growing length of episodes of this show. There's no way that we can talk about everything. And I think the watch is unfortunately going to be meet the the, the cutting floor because uh, the phones are new. I've had them for a week. Uh, iOS eight is out and is new, and you have covered it. I think it's fair to say more extensively than anybody else. Maybe Federico would only be the only other person I could think of whose whose depth of coverage of iOS eight is in the same ballpark. Um, and I think we'll be lucky to. I don't think we'll be lucky to finish on time, even with just those two things. Uh, and we could talk about the event itself, which I didn't really cover, and I usually like to do. Um, and maybe that's where we can start. Um, Got a bunch of sponsors to run through, though. So let me, you know, let's uh, take a break before we even get started talking about the event. And uh, 
let me tell you guys about our first sponsor. It's our good friends at Harry's. This is one of those sponsors. They've been with the show for a while now. They keep doing it. Uh, I, if you haven't tried these guys yet, you're nuts. So what does Harry's do? Harry's is a company that looked at the men's shaving market, every aspect of it, from the hardware, the, the blades and the razors and the shaving cream and stuff like that. Um, uh, you know, the hardware, the, the products, just looked at the whole thing and said, this market is ripe for disruption. You're not getting, you're paying too much and getting an inferior product. Uh, I was on uh, Electric Shadow today and, and Moises described, you know, the stuff you get from Gillette as looking like a, I forget what he said, something like a cross between a disco and a Hot Wheels car. Um, just bad industrial design and cheap. Harry's stuff, their, their razors, their handles are so nice. They, and they just look like something that's built to last quality-wise and built to last design-wise, just in terms of like you could buy one in 10 or 15 years from now, it's still going to look nice. It's just right. It doesn't look like it's from this decade or that decade, just quality design. Uh, and they're disrupting the pricing because they're giving you higher quality stuff at lower prices. The starter set's an amazing deal. For 15 bucks. you get a razor, moisturizing shave cream, and three razor blades. Uh, why pay 32 bucks for an eight pack of blades when it's half the price at Harry's? And the big thing too, I think it's important is that they're not just slapping a name, you know, and they do have a cool name, cool brand. They ship stuff in cool boxes, but they're not just slapping their name, Harry's on blades made by others. They're so serious about controlling the whole thing. The whole widget is that they purchased their own razor blade factory in Germany and they're producing their own high quality, high performing, uh, German razor blades. Um, it, it's just great. It's great stuff. I can't be, can't say enough good things about, um, about their product. So where do you go to find out more? Go to harrys.com, H-A-R-R-Y-S.com and enter the coupon code talk show. They left out the, the, there's no, the, just use talk show and you'll save five bucks off whatever your first order is. And like I said, their starter kit is, uh, it's just 15 bucks. So, I mean, you can, you know, it's practically like getting started for free. So check out harrys.com and uh, I guarantee you, you're going to be happy with it. All right. So the event yeah, in the Flint Center, big mystery white box out front for a while. Uh, you were there. I think you were sitting two seats down from me, right? Or, was, or were you next to me? No, I think yeah, it was me, Clayton, me, you and Jim. Right. Me, you, uh, Clayton Morris and uh, uh, Jim Dalrymple. Uh now, getting invited to these sort of events, now that's, how many times have you been to like a keynote with a press badge? Twice. This is my second. And the first one was Dumbed WWDC. Yep. So that, you know, it's, you know, I hesitate to say new Apple, but it is a, an evolved Apple, I would say. New implies like a change in direction. I would say it's more of an expansion of a direction they were already in. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely fair. It's it's sort of like some of the constraints have fallen away from them. Yeah, and there, you know, uh, openness is indeed the right word. Now, I compare this all the way back to the original iPhone two thousand seven. The original iPhone two thousand seven review units were only given to, f I think, four people. Mm -hmm. I think it was Ed Begg at USA Today, Pogue at the Times, Mossberg then at the Journal, and uh, Stephen Levy yeah. at Newsweek. That was it. They were the only four people on the entire planet who got a review unit of the, the original iPhone. And I would say even for a few years after that, 
the the people who were on the list of you'll get pre you know a review unit a week or two weeks before it actually comes out was limited to um established long established print periodicals even if most people nowadays that even those days were reading them online and then slowly they started adding people from online only publications you know the engadgets and uh, people like me and and uh, dalrymple and stuff Nantech. like that yeah and on uh uh and it's you know so that's why I say and and clearly what they've done is they have greatly expanded the list of members of the press who are getting invited to these events. It's no longer, I still I think it's still selective. I can't even imagine how many requests they get that they turn down. But I think it's opened up in a way, and I think in a right way, where it's people who should have been. I think it's you know long overdue that you've been you've gotten invited to stuff like this. Um, uh, Daniel Dilger from. Yeah. Uh, uh, Apple Insider uh, has, I think, maybe I don't know if WWDC was the first, but it's you know certainly within the last year that he started getting Serenity Caldwell but, too. Yep, yeah, Serenity. Uh, well, Serenity MacWorld's gotten invitations for a long time. Yeah, but they they were, it's I'm never sure with Apple whether it's the publication or the journalist that they're inviting. Uh, it's both yeah. is my feeling. I don't think I think it's sort of the equivalent of asking whether Apple is a hardware or software yes. company. You know, it, it's both because, like, for example, M.G. Siegler, uh, when he was full time at TechCrunch, was getting invited. And then when he left TechCrunch, but before he joined Google, he still got invited, yeah. even when he wasn't a full time person at Ryan TechCrunch. Ryan Block, too, I, when he left Engadget. Yeah, he's a, another good example. Yeah, perfect example. Um, I It's clearly, though, and I can't help. We talked a bunch of us because we had like an hour to burn yeah. before the event milling about. I mean, it was you know, what, and that's what we do. We sit there and insider gossip, but it's it's almost impossible not to draw a conclusion that it has something you know that this expansion of the list and less exclusivity has something to do with Katie Cotton's departure. Well, it was also a much bigger venue than they've used for iPhone events in the past. And often, you know, at least, you know, they would cite capacity issues, but they made sure they had room for 2,000 odd people, including fashion bloggers. And uh, you introduced me um, to the gentleman from Hodeki. The watch bloggers were there too. Right. Yeah, you know, I didn't know Ben Clymer personally, yeah. but I'll even though I, I, I've been a fan of his site for a very long time, um, but I actually thought about introducing myself to him in advance, just sending an email. I don't, you know, I don't even know if I could assume that he's, you know, familiar with Daring Fireball. But maybe. But even if not, I would, you know, take the point of just saying what I do, and just saying, hey, did you get an invitation to this event? Because I thought that would have been, you know, a surefire tell that they were going to do a yeah. watch. I can't help but think too the fact that guy, and maybe he couldn't say. Maybe he got an invitation that said you can't talk about it. But I think the fact that that. Ben Clymer was there, and presumably other people from the watch world, uh, is why the fact that they were going to do a watch leaked within about the last week. Sure. Because um, even just a month prior, when I suggested that maybe they would do the wearable at the September event, even though all the previous rumors said it would be an October thing, uh, and it was like a big deal for a day that I'd said that, uh, everybody was expecting October. Right, and then all of a sudden, about a week before, it was like, "Oh yeah, they're definitely going to do a yeah. watch." And I can't help but think it's because they started inviting people. Yeah, well, I mean that that joke comment that you made was 
terrific. I mean, that that propagated incredibly quickly across the internet. Yeah. Well, I, it really was though. It wasn't just that, that anybody told it to me. It was honestly just the hunch that it would make sense as a single event. You know, here's this thing where you can do Touch ID on your phone. Here's this thing, you know, to pay. Because um, I knew the payments thing was coming, and it just seemed like, well, why not do it with the watch? And same thing with all the health tracking. Sure. Whereas I don't see how the watch would fit with an iPad and Yosemite event in October. Yeah, if it's going to be a companion product specifically for the iPhone, then it makes sense to do it in the iPhone event. Yeah, and that's the other thing too. I did see I that that I didn't know. You know, nobody knew in advance that it was going to be a hey, you need you need an iPhone to fully use the the Apple Watch. Um, Right, you know, they've said to use it. Period. Uh, even though a lot of its functionality is not dependent on have being within proximity of the phone, but uh, yeah, that makes sense too, and it's not surprising. No, and it was it was a really strange morning because you and I, and I think we were standing with Jason Snell and a couple other people, and we noticed that Apple was quasi live blogging their own event, which I've never seen yeah, before. That's totally new, you know, and. I, you know, I've always thought that, like you said, with the capacity that they cite, you know, well, we have it here because we can't find a bigger place. Um, I don't recall, and and Jason Snell and I were talking about this, and Snell seems to think that they might have done this at some point, but I can't recall them ever using Moscone West other than as a keynote for Macworld Expo or WWDC when, when you know, uh, Moscone has already been rented out. Um that they've never, and I think, you know, and he said he thinks maybe they have, but it's hard because if somebody else, like in last week, for example, Intel had a developer's conference at Moscone West. So they couldn't have had, the, they literally could not have done it. But I don't think they've ever done that. And that's a huge room, potentially. Other than that, they, they I've, I've, in all the years I've been going to these things, I've never seen one that was in an event, uh, a venue as large as the Flint Center. No, and it's historic for Apple, too, because they made a point of pointing out this is where the Mac and the iMac are introduced. Right. Um, the biggest surprise to me, and a sign that Apple PR has, you know, truly evolved and changed, well, was um, that Brian Lamb was invited. Yeah. Now, now at the great, great wire cutter site, uh, and I think it's great that he did. But the reason that's remarkable is that he's the guy who was running Gizmodo back when they had their hands on the the stolen iPhone from the the bar where the Apple engineer had left it. And he's the guy who answered the phone when Steve Jobs personally called and said, give me back my phone and said, no, you know, we want something from you before we give it back to you. The fact that he's now off the shit list <laughs> and on the invitation list is remarkable. I, even with all of the expansion of it, even with the return of Gizmodo, because yeah. everybody who was there back then is gone from Gizmodo. Now they've, you know, the, Gawker sites go through, you know, employees, you know, like uh, uh, butter churning. Yeah, even if you believe the penalty box has expired on Gizmodo, you, you're never quite sure if the ban on that specific player has been lifted. Exactly. Um, you know, and I think it's right. I think, you know, forgive and forget, you know, Brian Lamb is doing very different work and much better work these days. And uh, why not? But I just no way I, I cannot believe that that would have happened if Katie was still there. No, again, it feels sort of like a, a huge constraint that had been on them has been lifted and they can do a lot of the things that they probably thought would have been cool and fun a long time ago, like the countdown timer on Apple.com. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And the live blog. Yes. Yeah. I have suspected Anand would pull out a computer and start live blogging it right from the floor with us. Did you see him? No, he he wasn't there apparently. 
Oh, I didn't know that. I, I looked around for him, but it was so many people that I, I'm surprised I found as many people, friends that I knew before the event as I did. It was so crazy. I took a, a panoramic picture and a couple people comment and I Twittered it and a couple people said it looks like, uh, like one of the Disney World theme parks in the morning before they open the gates, you know, when, when thousands of people show up to try to be, you know, get on the rides first. Uh, and it really did. It's, some people were saying, and, and Apple's a little cagey, I think, about stuff like this, is like, how, how many people actually were there? I don't think they, they don't like to answer stuff like that. But somebody said that they had a capacity twice that of Yerba Buena. I, I don't see how that's possible, though. It has to be more than twice, I think, because I've been to Yerba Buena events many times and have never seen half that many people there. I've, you know, it seems like a third or even fewer. Someone mentioned it sees between 2000 and 2400. And I saw later some people that I know some friends that were there. And they tweeted that they were there. And I did not see them at all throughout the entire course of the event. There's so many yeah. people. Um, the other thing that I thought, too, is there were a lot more Apple people there, too, even with this expansion in the list of press who were there to cover it, which is definitely true. They invited way more Apple people to be there. Like when at the end, when Tim Cook said, hey, everybody who's from Apple, please do me a favor, stand up right now. Um, it seemed like half the crowd stood up. Yeah, apparently they had an internal lottery in some of the departments because they couldn't get everybody. So you'd, you'd get a chance to go and a bunch of people got picked, which was really nice to see. Hmm. So, you know, after, you know, it's a, almost a week and a half now as we record this, uh, looking back on it, how do you, what, do you, what are your thoughts on the event as a whole? I think the event, I have sort of two trains of thought about it. One is that I think... The stuff itself was really, really interesting. The stuff they showed off, the iPhones, uh, it was similar to when they finally went from AT&T to Verizon. They finally went from a four-inch to larger iPhones. And you can argue whether they should have done that earlier. I think they had really good timing. But also, it wasn't quite like the iPad or the iPhone event. And I think specifically the iPad event, because Steve Jobs was so careful to say, this is your phone, this is your laptop, this is the tablet, and this is what it does better than both those things, and this is the reason it has to exist. And with the iPhone, it was, you know, these are the old keyboards, and this is why they're wrong, and the old input methods and technologies and why they're wrong. And for the phones and the uh, watch, we got a list of really amazing features, but there was never that one moment where uh, Tim Cook or anybody at Apple said, this is, this is the, the reason this has to exist. For the iPhone 6. Yeah, or the iPhone 6 or the iWatch. I mean, I, I, I think it was clear, like, we can extrapolate it. Like, the, the iWatch is clearly convenience, and the iPhone 6 is clearly a higher class of, of software eventually, but it was never stated outright on a single slide or in a single sort of slogan. I think for two very different reasons, though. I think with the iPhones, it's uh, they're not hard for anybody who's used an iPhone to get their heads around. Mm -hmm. The screen is either bigger or way bigger, <laughs> and the camera's better, and they get better battery life, and they're thinner and sleeker. And right, you could pretty much stop right there. I, uh, you know, it it's. You know, I don't think I wasted any words in my review, but I think that a very short overview um, can get across 85% of what most people would want to know about these phones, right? The iPhone 6 is bigger. It gets a little bit better battery life. The screen has is nicely improved, you know, in terms of uh, viewing angles and color and stuff like that. And the camera's better. And that's it, you know, and you can, you can get it in higher storage capacities. And then the iPhone 6 Plus... Uh, 
it's way bigger. If you want like a new style device that's that's like a two-handed iPhone size, more like a mini tablet, and you're gonna get a couple more hours of battery life per day because the battery is so humongous. Uh, there's the you know there's a new class iPhone for you. And stop right there, and I think that covers what it what it means for eighty five percent of the people. Yeah, I agree completely. I think my only reservation is that you're never sure. Uh, we all, we all live in bubbles of various sizes, and I I have a Nexus Five, and I have a Lumia Ten Twenty, and I have um, I've used Galaxy Notes and Galaxy Megas and and things like that, the big phones. So I'm I'm a little bit familiar with them. But I think a lot of people who've only bought iPhones are only familiar with the three point five and four inch size, and to hear why Apple didn't continue that, like why. They, they went to the bigger screen. Uh, I mean, I think you know there, there's a productivity argument to be made for the iPhone six plus, but even the iPhone six, uh, there's a, there's a, a really brief statement about we're going to give you more. We're going to give you a bigger window window into the internet and into apps. Uh, it would have just eased a little bit of the stress that people had when oh my you know instead of saying oh my god they abandoned the four inch, it'd be oh wow this is so much more that I can do now with four point seven. Yeah, and I've been thinking about that you know maybe even close to a year ever since it became so strongly rumored that they were going to go to two sizes, 4.7 and 5.5 and not have a next generation model at the four inside size. I've been thinking for a long time, you know, the whole, the whole year, well, I like 4.0 inches and 4.0 inches is the size of the best selling, the best selling, most profitable phone in the world because that's what the iPhone 5S was. Yep. You know, and the iPhone 5C was like, I don't know, like third, like yep. the third best selling and most profitable smartphone in the world. Like three, two out of the top three selling phones in the world were 4.0 inches last year. And they've now they've just let, and you know, one I asked about this, and one of the things I was told was, well, we haven't left it behind. We still have those phones. They're just moved down the line, and including the fact that you can buy the a new 5s at 32 gigabytes, not just at 16, for 49 dollars more. It's 149 dollars on contract, and that's not entirely new either, because the 5c, when it was as a brand new device last year, it came in 16 and 32 gigabyte sizes too. But I feel like that's a little bit more of a, it just seems to me like a little bit more of a hedge now. Yeah, it's an escape hatch if you're not quite ready to grow with Apple to the larger screen sizes yet. Right. So I don't know. I wonder if they're going to wait and look at what people buy and what how things go or what they're thinking. Like it wouldn't totally, I, I, I would expect that next year we're just going to get S. I don't know if they'll use an S, but the equivalent iPhone 6S and iPhone 6S Plus, and the two new phones will be these sizes. Uh, I don't expect there to be, you know, them to go back to 4.0 inches. It sounds to me like they've said, here's the, at this point with the technology, where technology's evolved, where prices have evolved on screens, what's the best sweet spot to hit the most people with the least amount of choice? These are the two sizes they've decided on, I think. But I wouldn't be shocked if they, you know, have a 4.0, you know, call it the iPhone 6 mini. Yeah. You know, and it's this rounded form factor, but at a four inch size. It wouldn't shock me, but I don't expect it. No, and I think it's interesting. And you had uh, 
a good post before the event on what you thought the screen sizes would be and why. And it reminded me of the first time I read it of when Steve Jobs was talking about the difference between the iPad and Android um, tablets when they were just basically expanding the interface. And he was saying that with the iPad and the split view controller, it allowed a higher class of software. And when I saw the five, um, sorry, the iPhone 6 Plus turn sideways and you get that split view controller, it reminded me of the same thing. These bigger sizes, the Apple's only doing it with the iPhone 6 Plus, but developers can do it with any size that they want now with the new adaptive UI, that it will allow for a higher class of software, but that sort of necessitates a larger screen, especially for anybody who doesn't have really good really young eyes yeah well i i I don't think there's no way that that split view would work on the 4.0 inch size they show it in one in that wwdc session in a demo app and it it does look but it's that that 16.9 aspect ratio that is wasteful in some interfaces on the iphone in landscape mode and the split screen just seems to fix that one problem yeah especially with the keyboard up because there's a minimum height to a usable keyboard and on the 4.0 inch size when you're when you're horizontal it's at least half the screen whereas on the two new phones it's not you know it leaves a lot more room above it because they don't that the keyboard isn't the same relative size it's more like the same physical height yeah and it is that compromise that i think you know you spoke about earlier where it it is bigger to carry around but the iPhone 6 plus specifically you turn it around and get that iPad style layout you are gaining productivity out of that compromise yeah, yeah I'm looking at the the 6 plus in my hands right now and uh, with the keyboard up in landscape mode horizontal mode it it's a little bit more than a third but it's way less than a half there's way more usable re, you know screen real estate above the keyboard on this. Yeah, the the iPhone five and five S made me really claustrophobic with the keyboard up in landscape mode. Yeah, I, I, you know, and, and that might be the main reason why I say I, I never use my iPhone in landscape other than what things where you know, like videos yep. or uh, watching videos or playing games. Likewise, uh, the only thing I ever ever do in landscape is sometimes with a web page that doesn't really even with double tap to zoom, the text is too small. I'll turn it sideways yep. to be able to read it, and that's it. Um, I can't think of anything else that I do in landscape. No, I'm exactly the same way, which is why that that 16.9 aspect ratio is so good for those few specific things, but the the other portrait is much better for the rest. Yeah, and I think it shows, for example, in Vesper, like Vesper doesn't support landscape because I think Dave and Brent feel the same way. Uh, And I think that's come to bite us on the ass now because – on these bigger phones, it really feels weird that an app doesn't support landscape. And maybe it's just because as we're reviewing the phones over the past week, I was doing it a lot just for the sake of seeing what it's like. But it, it no longer feels silly or some kind of concession to people with particularly uh, big thumbs or something like that. It feels like it's a first class part of the iPhone interface. Yeah, well, a big hint to that, I think, you know, the original iPhone didn't even let let almost nothing go into landscape mode. I think Safari did yeah. in the video app, almost nothing. But now yeah. even the home screen does on the iPhone yeah. 6 Plus. And I think that's a big hint for people. Yeah, I like, and it's that's kind of neat too. I like it. And I like the way that the, the dock is always on the right yeah. as somebody who on the Mac has always, always worn his dock on the right. It feels very natural. The iPad moves it around with you, but it feels very natural yeah. on. Where's your dock on your Mac? Um, my dock on my Mac is on the left-hand side, but hidden oh. most of the time. Left. I know, oh, Renee. All right, this. I'm going to get a new guest. For I'll, the fix show this week. I'll fix it. I'll fix it. No, you're off. You're off the show. <laughs> Left hand dock. Oh, it's gross. No, I. I don't know. I've always been a right hand dock person, and uh, 
I'm glad that's where they put it on that phone. I actually, I have it on one of my Macs. It's at the bottom and one of it is on the left. Yeah, bottom is acceptable. Although I still think it's weird. The left is just because, uh, I forget which one it is, but one of them has that really wide screen and it just seemed to, I, I want more vertical pixels. So I got it off the bottom and I just stuck it on the yeah. left. My problem with dock on the bottom has always been that all, every Mac screen is horizontal. Yeah. And so vertical real estate is always at more of a premium than horizontal real estate. So why not put it on the side? But anyway, that's neither here nor there. <laughs> uh, anyway, back to, uh, to the event. I think if they had needed to, if the watch, let's say that come August 1st, when they really needed to say, okay, what are we going to do next month? All right. And if they had said, you know what, the watch just isn't ready, even for a pre-announcement, it's not, you know, we got to scrap it. They could have had an, an event similar to previous iPhone events and then, you know, include Apple Pay, just the iPhones and Apple Pay. And it would have been fine. Yeah, it would have. I think it would have been at a smaller venue. I don't think they would have taken the Flint Center. And I think Schiller could have easily gone sixty minutes instead of thirty minutes talking about features on the phones and what's improved. Yeah, and they could have he had would. Craig recapitulate WWDC as he's done several years in a row. Yeah, I don't think so though, because I think that's waiting. I think we will see that in in uh, October, but I feel like that would have been harder to do because at WWDC they can talk about you know, look, all this stuff is all beta, right? Mm -hmm. the, the, the handoff and uh, all the other, um, uh, uh, what's it called? The, the catch-all phrase for all of these. Not extensibility. The, it starts with a C. Continu uh, continuity. Con continuity. All these continuity features. I don't think that they could do it in a September event where iOS is no longer beta, but Yosemite is. Yeah, very true. I think it had, I think that the Federici stuff, is, you know, demoing all the continuity stuff has got to wait for October. Yeah. I think it could have just been, you know, Schiller doing stuff on the phone like he has in past years. And maybe, you know, add add Tim Cook's usual preamble with the sort of state of the company. Could have had a 90-minute event with, you know, maybe 50 minutes of iPhone 6 and, you know, the, the rest of it, Apple Pay, and it would have been fine. That's very true because in previous years, Cook would, he'd go over all the results. He'd make fun of Android a little bit. He'd do each show an Apple store opening with a nice video. And this year he he said, and, you know, I think it's worth pointing yeah. out, you know, Apple's doing fine. And then they got right into the iPhone. Yeah. And Schiller, I, I mean, he was flying, mm -hmm. I thought. I mean, I thought, it, you know, I don't wouldn't say he was rushed and he was polished, but that was a really, really concise. I mean, I think it measured almost exactly 30 minutes, and that's really short. Uh, and it's almost remarkable how soon they got into it. It was only like seven minutes into the thing, and all of us, including three minutes of it for a, a purely promotional video at the beginning. Yeah. Uh, and it was like, here, here they are. Here's you know, here's what they, here's what they look like. Here's what they do. Here's what's new. And uh, back to Tim. And he was off the stage. And you you remarked on it at the time, but it it was impeccable. It was on the thirty minutes. They finished on the two hour yeah. mark. It was perfect. Yeah, it was a very tight event. I mean, because I, you know, two hours is to to them, and I think rightly so. It's like the upper limit. Mm -hmm. And if they do a rehearsal and it's two hours and ten minutes, no matter how uncuttable it seems, ten minutes of stuff is going to get cut. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, let's take a second break. And, and we'll get back to this. And I guess maybe interrupt the idea of going through the show and, and talk a little bit more about the, the new iPhones. Sure. Um, I want to talk about our second sponsor. And sorry, friends, at Drobo. Drobo's slogan is smart storage to protect what matters. 
What's Drobo? It's a gadget you buy. It's external storage that you buy, and it's expandable. So you buy a Drobo, and you can plug expanded capacity into it on the fly by adding drives. So it's not a drive. It's sort of sort of like a RAID, uh, except that Drobo stuff is all sort of custom, and they let you do things you can't do with a RAID, like just pull a hard drive out, plug another one in. Um, really cool stuff. Like if it lights up green, it means that drive, you could just pull it out at any time. So if you've got like your Drobo set up with a whole bunch of one terabyte drives, it looks like a larger than that collective storage and you're getting close to the limit. You can just pull one of the ones that's green out, plug a three terabyte drive in and Drobo will just take care of it. And what that means is that all the stuff, your bits, your ones and zeros are replicated across those drives so that one physical drive that goes bad isn't going to cause you to lose um, to lose data. They've been around for a while, um, and, you know, and it, they just keep getting better and better. The new one, Drobo Gen 3, is three to five times faster than its predecessors. Three to five times faster. It has a new dual-core microprocessor built-in uh, and what they're calling a super-speed USB 3.0 interface. Um, uh, you could search for reviews online, and, and third parties will verify it. The performance connected over USB 3 is over 200 megabytes per second. Um, really good stuff. Fast. It's reliable. It's optimized for time machine. It's almost like the perfect time machine target. Buying one just to use for time machine is a perfectly sane idea. You can create separate disk volume uh, on your Drobo, partition it. You can create a separate one just for time machine. You could use the whole thing for time machine, whatever you want to do. Very, very configurable. Uh, bottom line, really cool storage. Read all about it. Re way more robust and configurable and expandable. The expandability is the part. You buy one, get it set up, and later on you can make it bigger without even shutting down your computer or unmounting the Drobo. Uh, and a starting price of just $349, which is one-third less than its predecessor. And they have a special offer for listeners of the show. Uh, 50 bucks off. 50 bucks off your purchase of any Drobo at www.drobostore.com. Drobostore.com using the code uh, Gruber50. The 50 is for the 50 bucks you'll save. Uh, they have the G in Gruber capitalized. I think it might be case sensitive. So Gruber50 with a capital G, uh, and you'll save 50 bucks, which can get you one for just $299. My thanks to Drobo. Uh, good friends of the show. So did you order an iPhone 6? I did. I ordered an iPhone 6 Plus. You got a 6 Plus. Yeah. So what made you go Plus? Uh, I sort of want to exp I want to try it because it is so new. And then there have been big phones on the market before, but Apple's take on it I find really interesting. I love the idea of the split view controller in landscape mode. And I like the idea of the longer battery because, you know, especially when we go to conferences or events, I'm roaming most of the time and the radio is just screaming and draining the battery. Uh, that and the optical image stabilization, I don't know how big a deal that'll be on the camera, but I'm really, I'm really interested in trying it out. Yeah, Matthew Panzerino's examples were pretty good. I thought at that. Yeah, um, you know, and it looks like you get an extra stop or two, um, and it you know can help you shoot at a significantly lower ISO speed, even in low light. Uh, 
Honestly, having spent a week with him, I wasn't even tempted by. I guess I had to order. I ordered on Friday night, so I'd only been or Thursday night, so I'd only had it for three three days at that point. But there was no no doubt in my mind that I wanted a the regular iPhone six. I think that's the safe not the safe choice is the wrong word. I think that that is the right choice for most people. I think it looks like a lot of people are going for the six plus, and I'm not sure whether that's because they really want a five a point five inch phone or because they just assume that they or they just feel like every time Apple puts out a new phone, they're going to get the most expensive one or the what they assume is the flagship. I, I don't, it's one of those things, you know, and Apple reveals more than most companies, but there's no way that I expect them to reveal the split between the six and the six plus, because I think that's highly competitive data, but I would be fascinated to know it. And I would also be fascinated to know how it changes over time, because I, my hunch is that the early adopter crowd who does things like pre-order one of these before they've ever seen one in the flesh you know, which I would be doing if I ha- even if I hadn't had the review units already, I I would have been pre-ordering anyway. Um, but let's face it, that's sort of a crazy thing to do. Normal people don't go and buy, you know, uh, uh, six, seven, eight hundred, nine hundred dollar devices that they haven't even put in their hands yet. Um, I think that crowd skews towards the bigger size because they're it's it's. I don't know. It's just more, I don't know, nerdy that they, you know, they do more work on their phone. It's a little bit less of a passive device and more of an active device. Yeah, well, there seems to be two groups of people, and one is people who can only have one device, and this is a group that's been really popular in Southeast Asia, uh, and those are usually lower-cost yeah. large phones because they have to have uh, a phone. They just they, they need it to basically to live and to communicate, but they want as big a screen size as possible. And then you have people in North America who are, they just want something that's a small tablet that they can carry around. And according to people like Ben Beharin, the, the large size phones, like the Galaxy Note size phones, have never sold well in North America previously. So it'll be interesting to see if that's because there's no Apple phone in that category or if it's really because that category only appeals to a niche market in the industry. Yeah. I didn't mention this in my review. It's in my notes, uh, and I left it out because it seemed, you know, it was long enough, and it's, you know, sometimes you got to start cutting stuff. But uh, I think it is going to severely cannibalize sales of the iPad Mini. Uh, and I say this as somebody who has used the iPad Mini as 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 my personal, my only personal iPad for ever since it came out two years ago. I even went with the mini that first year when it was not retina and I'd already gotten used to the retina display and, you know, which was a huge trade-off, but I like that size for what I use an iPad for primarily, which is, okay, I'm done working for the day in my office here at home. Now I'm downstairs and I still want to read some stuff. You know, I still want to you know, do some stuff, but I'm just sitting around the house on the couch or in an armchair or something like that. And I want to use an iPad. I love the mini for that. Um, I, but I think though, overall it is, this, this device is too close to the mini. And if you, if you have it, the mini just seems pointless. I, I think that's very true. I think what'll see, it'll take a while to happen because I think the iPhone 6 Plus is going to be supply constrained or at least it'll have a much higher constraint than... The, well, it already is. Yeah. So right now, if you order today, it's already... Or at least I didn't even check today, but yesterday I checked and it uh, that was Wednesday the 17th. It was already quoting three to four weeks. Yeah. And the iPhone 6 was only quoting three to four days. Yeah. 
Um, so I think it'll take a while before there's widespread adoption and, and people who get it, not all of them may like it. Some of them might decide to go to the smaller one. But what I'm most curious about is whether it just simply cannibalizes the iPad mini. And Apple has said before they'd rather cannibalize their own stuff than somebody else. Or if people who previously have an iPhone 5 or 5S and an iPad mini now move to an iPhone 6S and uh, an I, uh, iPad Air, or maybe you know theoretically an iPad Pro one day. If you they go from yeah. small small to big big instead of getting nothing on the tablet. I think side. it's really I think it's really going to put a dent in the iPad Mini sales, and I think it might put a dent in iPad sales. Period. At least among people who choose the six plus, that it to me really is. Uh, I, I you know I, I forget exactly how I put it in my review, but. It, almost as much, maybe not quite, but almost as much, like 40% more like an iPad Nano, a hypothetical iPad Nano, than it is an iPhone Plus. It's It really, to me, feels like a new class of device, um, more than just a big iPhone, really does. And a big part of that is the horizontal stuff, you know, the two column layouts, but even in the, the portrait landscape, vertical landscape, it just feels in hand. It really, to me, feels like something you have to use with two hands for the most part, which to me is what makes it, uh, a different class device than an iPhone. It's almost the inverse of what happened when the iPad mini launched because people were used to having a two handed iPad experience and the iPhone, the iPad mini was almost a hand and a half. And now people are so used to using the one handed iPhone, the iPhone plus iPhone six plus is two, you know, hand and a half to two handed device. Uh, the other thing that's curious though, and I think would be like, it's almost like a no brainer and you don't even, you know, all the times that they've cannibalized their own products, you know, with the iPod nano, just wiping out the iPod iPod mini, even though the mini was the single most popular consumer electronics product in the world at the time, uh, the iPhone having a full unabashed iPod app that eliminated the need to carry a standalone iPod, right? Like the traditional tech company way, if you had a, a popular franchise like iPod would have been to like make you tether your iPod to your phone somehow or something like that, or to, like the rocker phone, like limit the number, just artificially limit the number of songs you can put on your iPhone or something like that. They didn't do anything like that. They were like, hey, it's the best, Steve Jobs called it the best iPod we've ever made. Fine. Uh, it, it, scary because it was, you know, a hugely popular thing. In this case, I don't think they have any reason to fear it because these things, don't don't think about the on-contract pricing, which is not the true price. Their Their true price is like, three times higher than the price of an iPad mini, right? You get iPad mini starting at 299, right? Yeah, it's one of the these things off contract unlocked are, you know, $800 devices. Okay. So if people stop buying I iPad minis for three or $400, so they can buy $900 iPhone six pluses, uh, you know, that's sort of like, Anybody can see the the business sense in that. That that is great for Apple because they move from a super low margin product to a to a, a very good margin product. But one of the things that's always impressed me about Apple as a company is that they've never mistaken their products for their businesses. And we see this in technology so often, like Microsoft with Windows everywhere, where they think that they make Windows and they really don't. Apple never made the mistake that they made iPods, you know, or they made an iPod Mini. They knew that they made personal music devices and 
would evolve those and those became the iPhone. And now they are not an iPad company. They'll kill the iPad if they have a better idea. They just make these consumer these great devices that you can carry around. And whatever the next version of that, they are fearless in moving to it as quickly as possible because they'd rather do it before somebody else does. And they do you know, get rid of some profits. They leave money on the table by not dragging out every single nickel out of every single product. But I think when you see how long they've been making really good amounts of money that ultimately is to everybody's benefit. Yeah. Uh, a good question that I got asked after my review hit and people you know, realized I had both phones and they could ask me questions. It didn't occur to me before at all because I don't use it personally. But I got asked by a couple of people on Twitter um, whether the iPhone 6 Plus in particular or either of the new ones works with the camera connection kit, which is the little lightning thing you plug in and then you can plug an SD card into an iPad and import photos you you take photos with a regular camera standalone camera take the sd card use the camera connection kit and you instead of putting them on a mac you can put them on an ipad and it's always been an ipad only peripheral um didn't even occur to me to try it uh i did and it's exactly nothing has changed when as soon as you plug the lightning adapter into the either of the new iphones it says this this peripheral or or whatever it's called is not supported on this device um I wonder, though, if that's an oversight, because it seems to me like I never quite understood why camera connection kit didn't work with an iPhone. I, I, it's never been clear to me technically why that's the case. Um, you know, if anything, iPhones uh, now have just as much storage as iPads. You know, who knows? Maybe they'll double the iPads again. But storage shouldn't be the limiting factor. You know, it should be up to you if you have a 32 or 64 gigabytes of storage, what you use it for. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. And I hope it is an oversight because especially now with the bigger screen phones, it makes so much sense. If you're traveling and you have an iPhone 6 Plus, especially, you're not going to want to bring an iPad with you, but you might bring a camera with you. You might bring something else like a DSLR. I often take one with me, especially when I go out of town uh, for this kind of photography that I that I just don't use an iPhone for. But the ability to bring that all in, the DSLRs are still dead. Like there's no, there's no camera play like there is car play. So I need the iPhone to do all the cool modern connected stuff. Yeah, I, and you know, hopefully it's an oversight because I do, I think it's a clear use case. I mean, at least two people on Twitter specifically, I you know, and I take it that they're either avid avid amateur or maybe even professional photographers. I didn't ask the details, but that they you know go out in the field with an iPad and use that as their you know in the field editing and storage device, and they would rather replace it with this, you know, for the obvious reason that it's crazy small compared to an iPad. Mm-hmm. It's a great yeah. way to show off your portfolio, especially for photographers. A lot of them like the iPad because they can carry a lot of you know, graphics work with them, photography worth them, and the iPad 6 and 6 Plus will be great for that too. Yeah. I'm trying to think if there was anything else that I left out of my review that I could use here, but I, I can't think of anything. I did want to m- mention the two uh, and see what you think about them, but the two big uh, – well, one's big and one maybe is not as big. But the two negative things I had to say about the Apple's decisions, the first, and it's the clearly the biggest, is their decision to keep the, the entry level on both phones at 16 gigabytes. And so that the split between 199, 299, 399, and 299, 399, 499 for the two phones is 16, 64, 128, instead of what to me looks more natural would be double them all, 32, 64, 128. And I, I really, like I said in my in my review, it, it almost seems punitive 
to only to ship one of these with only 16 gigabytes. I mean, the original iPhone, the most popular model of it in back in 2007 had eight gigabytes. So to only double it since the original eight product generations ago is ridiculous. And then I forgot about this because I bought my iPhone on day one. But Apple, like six months after the original, this is the original iPhone, the original one, the one that only got two, 2G networking, um, they shipped a 16 gigabyte model of it. Uh, like in January or something like that. Do you remember that? Yeah, with the price cut, they also increased the storage. Yeah. Uh, so in other words, the low-end iPhone 6 Plus today has the same amount of storage as the high-end original iPhone back in 2007. That, to me, is it's just nuts. Yeah, can you I imagine really... a MacBook having the same hard drive space on the low end as a 2007-era MacBook? Yeah, it's really, and I keep seeing everybody today as they upgrade to iOS 8 is running into these problems where you need like, it wants four four gigabytes free to, or four and a half gigabytes free to do the OS update. Yeah. Um, well, how is that, how are you going to, if you've got a 16 gigabyte iPhone today, how in the world are you going to have four gigabytes free next year when iOS 9 comes out? And it's it's worse in some ways because they're they're still selling an eight gigabyte iPhone five C and they're you know they've sold eight gigabyte models in India and China and other brick countries before you know maybe there'll be a five, an eight gigabyte iPhone five S eventually who knows and that last year you know there was no way you, I could recommend that phone to anybody it's just it's almost unusable at that point and now sixteen feels like that I at eight gigabytes and with the size of iOS I honestly wonder how if you took one and did a factory restore on it and wiped all of your personal stuff off, every photo you've ever taken, none of your own music, do a factory restore, is there going to be enough room to install iOS 9 over the air? I, I don't even know if that's true. I mean, it's to me, that's crazy given what has to be the relatively low uh, price differential Apple would pay for the to, to double those. It's it, punitive is a good word for it. Someone also made an analogy to airlines and how you have um, economy class, business class, and first class, and how economy class is deliberately made more miserable in an effort to you know maybe upsell the premium seating options that are an extra fifty bucks, whatever. And this the typical marketing thing is have the entry level model that gets people in the door, but that entry level model. Maybe they, they still believe that if it was 32 gigs, more people would opt for that and there'd be fewer people moving to the medium tier and they really want the medium tier to be the normal one. Uh, I guess that's the only explanation. Honestly, that, I think that has to be it. So I'm not trying to act stupid like I don't see that angle. But I honestly think that's beneath Apple and in long in the long run, whatever, whatever increase in active, or not active selling, but average selling price they're going to get because of this the the way they've made these tiers however much money they're going to make on that to me is probably going to be less than the damage it's doing to their brand by selling brand new iphone 6 and 6 pluses that uh, honestly i think cannot be recommended i i really i would honestly say that you anybody out there looking for buying advice pretend like those ones don't exist and that the starting price is 299 and 399 on contract for the 64 gigabyte models whereas i think 32 gigabytes would be fine if you think that you know knowing how much space you use on your phone now you know knowing how much of your music and video collection you like to carry around on the device um you know i like to put my whole music library on the device which already puts me close to 64 uh, or at least in, you know, over 32. Uh, and then with 128, I, I'll, will no longer, I, you know, for the last couple of months, I've 
every couple of weeks I have to delete stuff from my phone because I get a warning that I'm used up the whole 64 gigs because of shooting high def video and panoramic photos and stuff. So I, I really want and can use the 128, but I can see how somebody who doesn't store their music could easily get by with 32 and have room to spare next year to upgrade to iOS nine and stuff like that. But 16 to me is, is really a disappointment. There's, I've heard an argument from some people in the brick countries that all uh, the phones are used for mainly in those countries because of the way that data plans are set up is you'll get just a phone with a little bit of data and maybe Facebook messenger or BBM or something. And it's primarily a text-based communications device because voice plans are so expensive. And I also wonder if this, if the carriers mandate or there's some sort of agreement or there's some feeling that they have to have the brand new iPhone at 199 still because it'd be interesting to see they did keep around the 32 gigabyte iphone 5s if they let that just be the the 199 device and the new iphone started at 299 with 32 gigs i i refuse to believe that if they made the entry level ones 32 that it would adversely affect their margins and again i say this knowing like i said on this show with i think it was with Moltz a couple of episodes back it's so easy to armchair quarterback yeah. this and and tell apple to make these decisions that you know you they really ought to spend more money and go from 16 to 32 whereas if you multiply out 100 million phones per year and the difference you know even if it's only a dollar per phone it's a, you know hundreds of millions of dollars mm-hmm. and i agree you know hundreds of millions of dollars is nothing to sneeze at even for apple but in this particular case, it's it just is too much given the way they use it, and you know they're really promoting these features. You know, with the with the improved camera, which I think is a huge selling point, a huge reason to upgrade for for regular people in these cameras. The panoramic photos have gone to like fifty megapixels yeah. or fifty megabytes, or what, I, I forget what you know, but they're 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 like twice the size of the old panoramic ones. And you have the uh, time lapse too. Where you can take all those photos and combine them to a video. I mean, these are going to be huge. People are going to generate huge amounts of content. And I also have to wonder if they did go to 32 gigabytes, if any difference will be made up because people might buy more iCloud storage, or they might buy more apps because they can fit, you know, more more premium yeah. games, more large size gigabyte filling yeah. games on their phone. I mean, it just seems like there's there's better ways of getting people into the iPhone. And being an amateur camera guy, I know how amazing it is that you can buy a camera now that does 240 frames per second slow motion, right? That's just a couple years ago. That was like a real, I mean, shooting that level of slow-mo was expensive and it was hard to find on any kind of vaguely consumerish camera. Now you have it on your phone, but by definition, uh, 100, 240 frames per second is double the, yeah. the storage size of 120 frames per second. Did you see that 4K app for $1,000 on the App Store? No, yeah. no, tell me about it. So I forget the, the manufacturer, but they're a well-known video production company. They made really smart um, iPhone and iPad apps. For example, they're the ones who made the app that you can go out into a crowd with a bunch of different people and everyone will send their video back to the same iPhone or iPad and you can do multicam editing. And so the new one basically uses the camera instead of the video camera and takes multiple pictures and stitches them together into 4K video right on your iPhone. Wow. Yeah. There's there's really good camera stuff, especially in iOS 8. I'll have to check that out. What's the name of the app? I, I have to look it up, but it's it does 4K video and it's $1,000. And I'm guessing there's only going to be one of them. 4K. It's I am rich, but actually useful. Yeah. 4K video app for $1,000. God, I'm in the wrong business. <laughs> Vesper with 4K. Right. That's amazing. I'll have to look that up. Uh, I'll try to remember to put it in the show notes. Um, but I'll probably forget. <laughs> Uh, 
But what else? I, you know, I don't know. I mean, I, you know, as a guy who just wrote a 4,000 word review of the two phones, it's, you know, I feel silly saying there's not that much more to talk about, but I don't know that there's that much more to talk about. I apologize. It's VisiWig 4K is the name of the app. VisiWig. Okay. VisiWig. How do you spell that? V-I-Z-Z-Y-W-I-G 4K. V-I-Z-Z-Y-G? W-I-G. W-I-G. 4K. VisiWig. Oh, whatever. <laughs> Boy, that seems like a weird name for a $1,000 app. Um, I thought it was interesting that they sold more phones than ever before by mm-hmm. apparently a long shot. Yeah, it was 4 million pre-orders. Yeah, even with the whole pre-order system shitting the bed almost completely. Uh, yeah, I saw you tweet. I, I was up until um, I think 4 or 5 a.m. before I got my pre-orders done. Eastern time? Yeah. Oh, I was up later than that. Yeah, that, that's no, because it was only 3 a.m. Eastern time when they went live. It was right? supposed to go live. Yeah. And Apple.com, the main store page didn't go live, but a couple friends of mine sent me direct links about an hour, an hour and a half later, which actually worked. Huh. I was on the West Coast uh, in Portland for XOXO. Uh, and so it was midnight for us when it first went live. And I tried to, last year, I used the, um, the app, the app, Apple store app. And at the stroke of midnight, I opened the app and it was like not ready yet. And then I reloaded, like went back to home screen, opened the app again, and it was there and it was ready. And it was like, I don't know, 120015. And I clicked, uh, you know, iPhone 5S, Space Gray, 64, Verizon, upgrade this phone that I'm on right now, and, you know, a credit card authorization, and by like 12.01.30, I was done. Mm-hmm. And that was it. And Amy was with me, and she did the same thing. And, you know, then we were, that was it. I got an email, and, you know, the next Friday, my phone came. This time, we I spent, I don't know, two hours sitting there, you know, when we were having drinks and socializing, but I spent like two hours in the app. I, sp- I went to the applestore.com and no matter what I did, I couldn't get it to work. And I eventually had to resort to going to Verizon. The app was, for me, the app started before the website did and it would let me pick the phone I wanted, but the buttons to actually order it never activated. Yeah, that's exactly what I, well, I had trouble getting there. I would say most, every, most times I tried, I never even got that far. And about one out of three times I tried, I'd get all the way to the part where it let me pick iPhone 6, Space Gray, 128, Verizon, uh, and the button to say, add this to cart just never activated. Such a tease. Yeah. But right next to me, it worked for Amy eventually, but just randomly, you know, like 20 minutes in. She was there just sitting on that screen with the inactive add to cart button. And then all of a sudden the add to cart button went live and that was it. Man, everybody loves Amy. Oh, I don't know about that. <laughs> but yeah, And it was strange because watching the carrier sites, so, um, some of them announced they'd go up later and they came up earlier. Some people could get to Verizon, some couldn't, some could get to AT&T, some couldn't, some got waiting listed. T-Mobile took forever. It was They do this every year and they still can't get their shit together. And it's the most... <laughs> Verizon's worked. I don't think that I had. I went through in one shot with no bugs, but it's such a design nightmare. <laughs> and doing it on the phone makes it worse because their site is not mobile optimized. Really small fonts, lots of pinching and zooming and panning around. 
Um, but I was out. I didn't have anything else to order with. I had to use the phone. And I, I just, you know, it ends up, I think I could have still ordered the next morning and still gotten Friday delivery. But that's because I wanted the six. Yeah. And I didn't want to take that chance that it wouldn't come right away, you know, that it would go to two, three weeks delivery. Um, I have the Verizon website design wise, and in terms of the ways that they try to uh, trick you and get you to buy, like, get it with a protection plan, get it with a car charger. It's like those bad domain a, registration sites. Yeah, exactly. It, it and, and just the layout of it and the colors, all this red, it just reminds me of like what it would be like to like get your driver's license in, if the Soviet Union were still around. Yeah, exactly. it's like It's like some kind of, I don't know, it's probably like what the internet is like in North Korea. <laughs> Uh, it's yeah. it, it's like oppressive. No, and it's yeah, a company that is designed to sell you phones cannot sell you phones effectively on there. Well, you know, apple.com just went responsive, so I don't want to be too critical, but if you're yeah. selling products that involve mobile, you really should work on mobile. Yeah, says a guy whose whose website isn't yet responsive and whose number one platform for page views is iOS. I was really I, that's the thing that bummed me out about Apple going apple.com going responsive is I really thought that was the thing that uh I could I could still lean against and say, well, I'm not the last. Yeah. Now, you know, looks like I'm going to be last. Uh, let me take a break here and thank uh, thank our next sponsor, our good friends at Lynda.com, L-Y-N-D-A.com. Uh, Lynda.com is an easy and affordable way to help you learn. You can instantly stream thousands, thousands of classes created by experts on everything from software to web development to graphic design, uh, photography, and more. Here's how lynda.com stands out from the crowd. They have fresh content. New courses are added daily. They work directly with industry experts, expert teachers, and and uh, the people who are just the most keyed in to the things that they're teaching about. Uh, they often have new versions of their classes the very day that the new thing comes out. So like a new version of Lightroom comes out. Well, then their course on Lightroom is updated, if not the same day, within a week. Because the courses are taught by the sort of people who are beta testers of Lightroom. Really high quality, really easy to follow video t tutorials. Uh, high production quality high uh, pedagogical quality, uh, nothing at all like homemade videos that you see on YouTube. Uh, it's a great way to learn. You learn at your own pace. You learn at your own place. Uh, but it's expert teaching. Uh, all sorts of amazing topics. Everything, like I said, development, uh, design, photography, whatever you want. And the sky's the limit. When you sign up, you get one low monthly price, 25 bucks. And you just get unlimited access to the entire library. You pay 25 bucks a month. You watch as many things at lynda.com as you want. They have over 100,000 video tutorials. Um, you can upgrade to premium plans with an annual price. And then you can download courses directly to your iPhone or iPad or even your Android phone uh, and watch them offline. Premium plan members can also download project files and practice along with the instructor as the course goes along. Uh, really great stuff. Uh, anybody who's looking to learn anything like this, I really encourage you to check them out. And the best thing is, is that I have a deal with lynda.com. This is the same deal I've had before. 
Um, but for listeners of this show, you can get all access, everything, everything you want to watch for free for seven days. So you don't have to pay them money just to see if it's really as good as I'm telling you it is. Just do this. Go to lynda.com slash the talk show, the talk show, L-Y-N-D-A dot com slash the talk show, and you'll get seven days free to see if it's worth your money beforehand. That's how confident they are that you'll sign up. So my thanks to lynda.com. What about you? Do you have any questions about the iPhone 6 or 6 Plus for someone from someone who's used it? Uh, not, not that I can think of. I mean, I, I got to spend about 20 minutes with them in the demo room, so nowhere nearly enough right. to get my hands on them. But I'm not sure I'm going to be able to make any sort of opinion until I've used them for a week. What I liked about your review is that you used both of them for a period of time, and that really sort of cemented how the iPhone 6 Plus wasn't for you. Yeah, I, I you know, I'm not good at doing... Uh, you know, my, I work slowly and I think slowly and it, I really wish, I wish that I'd had two weeks yeah. to do it. So I could have done a full week with each one. Uh, it just seemed to me like if I switched back and forth every day, all day for a week, I'd never get a good sense of either. So I thought I'll do three with the plus first, then three with the six, and then, uh, you know, write my review on the seventh day. Uh, and it, you know, when I went, when I switched from the plus and I, you know, I, I did, I would say 98% of my iPhone usage was on the device I was using. I, I, there were one or two things that I used my personal iPhone for because I didn't have it on the review unit. Um, uh, I couldn't get Uber working, for example, on that thing. And it was a weird, you know, the, um, um, you know, this, that the location, settings in iOS 8 have changed yes. to be more fine-grained. Yeah. Well, existing apps that haven't been updated for iOS 8, it puts the and that want to use your location, it puts them in a weird spot where they it, it's like Uber wasn't asking me, "Hey, can I use location services?" I never even got prompted. Um it would just give me an error and it gave me the error when I was signing in, I would type my email address and my Uber password and hit okay. And instead of saying your password is good, you're in or your password wasn't entered correctly, try it again. After I hit sign in, it would say your location can't be determined. Yeah. Oh. And I, I, it took me like days to figure this out. And then I was, I thought, Oh, it's, it's not the phone. It's iOS eight. I went to settings, location, Uber, and it's, Uber was listed as one of the apps that wanted location, but instead of saying that it was set to don't allow or allow or allow only when I'm in the app, it was set to nothing. Yep. It was like nothing at all. So if I tapped Uber and then just said, here, let it use my location while I'm in the app, uh, then I went back to Uber and it all worked. But in the meantime, I had to order Ubers around San Francisco. I had to use my real iPhone. So there's just one example of something that I couldn't do. But everything other than that, I used the review phones. When I switched after three days to the iPhone 6, it was like, wow, this is a relief. I think you know, it, there's, it's almost inarguable that the iPhone 6 is a linear successor to the iPhones that have come before. And the iPhone 6 Plus, like you pointed out, is really something new. And we know some people who've had them for a while now. And they, you know, the comments are the same. You know, it's not a one-handed device. I'm kind of scared of dropping it when I try to use it one-handed. And I think it's, it's really important that people think of it as something else or they might just get it thinking it's the next iPhone. Yeah. I do wonder, like I wrote last year, I do wonder whether there's going to be some amount of 
buyer's regret where somebody goes in the store and it just looks so impressive because it does i mean it is uh it's just a striking device physically um and they're going to say wow that looks so awesome i'm going to get that one and then when they actually get it they start running into problems like it's hard to get out of your pocket while you're sitting down it's hard to put back in your pocket while you're sitting down well, imagine if you go into Best Buy and every television was subsidized, so they were all 200 or $300, regardless of the size, and you just see a 120-inch television, and it's 300 bucks, and you're going to make it yours, and then you get home and you realize there's no way to get that thing in unless you take down a wall. <laughs> it's something. It might be something like that. I don't know. Uh, I compared it to like the way that people tend to buy oversaturated TVs in Best Buy, because when you look at them side by side... You're not really imagining, you know, you're not looking at it in the right context and the extra saturation is striking and you think it looks good and then you get it home and it's like you realize that skin tones are just way off and everything is, it it doesn't look good, it just looks vibrant. And I don't want to scare anybody off because there are going to be people that it is going to be a tremendous productivity boom for them and they're going to love it and they're going to yeah, wonder no how doubt. they survived with a small screen before. Yeah, I think it's, you know, but I, I think most people know it when they see yeah. it. Um. I had to laugh, and I loved it. I didn't mention it online, but I loved Panzerino's review. Uh, I thought it was such a great idea to, you know, that, you know, and maybe it was like a happy coincidence because, uh, you know, his family already had the Disneyland trip planned. Um, but what a great, what a great stress test for review units of a phone than something like that, which you know is, a, you know, you you naturally you don't have to contrive reasons to shoot photos or videos. You're on a family vacation mm-hmm. at Disneyland. You're going to want to shoot. Uh, photos and videos and the lighting conditions are all over the place because you might be out in bright daylight walking around the park and then you go on a ride where it's super dark uh i thought that was a great review but i had to laugh at at his crazy idea of masking the two phones in android (laughs) android smartphone cases and then cutting a hole for you know the difference in the camera location like you don't have to do that like he he should have reread the the embargo agreement that that you get from Apple when you get a review like you're allowed to use them in real life you don't have to hide them you don't have to disguise them like you're you know there'd be no other way to do a real world review you can go out and just use the phone and you don't have to they give you cases you know to you know their cases so you can review the cases too if you want but since i don't use a case in real life i don't use a case with my review phones either i just use them um there are rules i mean for example everybody knows there's an embargo of when you're allowed to publish your any any kind of writing about it. Uh, and you're also not allowed, and this part, I, I'm actually thinking about emailing them and seeing if they might reconsider it. You're not allowed to post to any social media a photo that you've taken with it, mm-hmm. which er, once or twice, and I stick to it, but once or twice, like at XOXO, it kind of stunk because all the photos I was taking, I couldn't Instagram any of them. I have to like, what do they call it? Later gram them. Yep. And that is sort of a, it actually sort of... Um, makes it so that you, I can't fully use these review phones the way I would use a real phone because I do post things to Instagram or photos to Twitter. Um, but you know that a bunch of websites, the minute that happens, will say first iPhone 6 camera shots appear on social networks and they'll analyze yeah. the Flickr information. And- yeah, I kind of see why, you know, I am sure that's exactly why the rule exists. And, you know, and it's it's a very – the way they have it written now is a simple rule. You can't share photos taken with this camera over a social network. 
simple. Yes or no, you can't do it. Whereas what I guess I kind of want them to do is I wish I could do it without, but with the rule that I can't say, hey, I took this with an iPhone 6, you know, and here I'll, here's a version of the same scene taken with an iPhone 5. Look at the difference, you know, in advance of the embargo date. But just posting, you know, without commenting on it, I, I, I don't know. And I don't even know, like, does Instagram keep the EXIF data? I know Flickr does. So Flickr, I could see Flickr. Yeah. I could see, I would, I could see them making maybe a white list of you can post to Twitter and Instagram if it, if like EXIF data is stripped from those apps or something like that. Any website that makes horribly compressed, overly filtered versions of your photographs are fine to post to. Exactly. Right. So maybe they could whitelist a few. But anyway, it's a bit of a, a, a you know, yeah, it's a bit it's of a hassle problem. not be able to. I do liked that. Panzerino's review too because he's a pro he was a professional photographer and he knows to look for things like how it handles uh, saturated reds that you know I don't that not everyone yeah. will look for and I, also the Austin Mann piece that ran on his blog on the Verge where he took it with him to Iceland you know just to see I, I cannot ever make photographs like that but I like to see what the potential is with someone who really knows how to use that camera. Yeah, his his review made me feel so much better about not really having done any pho photography testing of mine that I just sort of ran out of time and just ran it and didn't really take any side-by-side -side pictures to really compare it. It's like, well, it would have been a waste of time anyway, because his review blew it away in terms of depth and expertise in terms of photography. Yeah. It's like watching someone in Middle Earth take around an iPhone 6. It's ridiculous. All right. So it just made me laugh though that Panzerino went around Disney World with his, <laughs> his, his iPhone 6s in these horribly janky cut up with hotel scissors <laughs> android cases when he could have just used them out and about but i will say as somebody who did that for the last week using it just out and about people recognized it like last year i don't think anybody did like i because i had an iphone uh, i forget what color it was oh, i had a gold one i had a gold 5s so i guess some people did notice there were some people who noticed because i had a gold one and gold was new but if I had had a space gray one, nobody would have known, even though space gray is a different color than the black that came before it. Uh, people just don't really notice. You know, it's an iPhone's an iPhone. The gold, a couple people noticed. But testing these two phones in the wild, especially the Plus, yeah. uh, just complete strangers would say, oh, my God, is that the new iPhone? Over and over and over again to the point where – and I didn't want to be photographed using it. I didn't want anybody posting pictures of me using it. So I would say yes, and you're allowed to. You, you, you're, you, know, you, can, you don't have to lie. You don't have to suddenly run away or something like that. You can say, yes, it's an iPhone you know, 6 Plus. Um, it's a review unit from Apple. Um, but you're not allowed to let people touch it, and you're not allowed to demonstrate it in a public way. So you can't say, sure, gather around employees of Super Duper Burger, and I will show <laughs> you the the – iPhone 6 plus so you kind of have to be a little bit of a jerk about it but uh, but you don't have to hide it and it's you know you don't have to lie about it or anything like that or put it in a case Is that the same it's as fun. last year or did that change as well no that's always been the okay. same as far as or at least since I've been reviewing them which started with the Verizon iPhone 4 well it's much better way to test it if that if the, if the embargo or the NDA was stricter than that it'd probably not be a functional test for you right it really wouldn't be if you had to you know you know, disguise it or something like Keep that. It locked in a room. Right. Because even if I had to put it in some kind of case, it would have affected my ability to judge just how pocketable it is without a case. Yeah. How durable which is really how the what finish I'm... is. There's so many things. Right. Uh, so that made me laugh. <laughs> it was a great, great extra paragraph or two in his article, though. 
Yeah, it, <laughs> it made me laugh, though, knowing the rules. Um, what do you think about, I guess, if there's anything else that's controversial about the design of the two phones, it's the camera nubbin? Yeah. Or the bulge, as I'm calling it. I'm not quite sure what to call it. One thing a couple people on Twitter pointed out, and again, because I don't use a case, I guess it occurred to me, but it didn't really pop to my forefront, is for anybody who does use their iPhone in a case, which I do believe to be a majority, if not an overwhelming majority of iPhone users. Just out and about in the real world, it seems to me like certainly many people don't, but it seems like most people do use a case. Mm -hmm. And if you do use a case, it's absolutely irrelevant because even the thinnest of cases is going to be thinner than the thickness of the bulge around the uh, camera lens. Yeah, absolutely. And even, uh, and I think some people point this out too, people who make accessories like Clip can ha now have use that as a guide to make sure that it stays in place when they put it on. Yeah, it's, you know, I would never go so far as to argue that it's therefore a feature and not a, you know, a design trade-off. But there is, it's sort of like a silver lining in in the trade-off. Well, I mean, the iPod Touch had this two years ago, three years ago, whenever that launched. And it's because cameras, Apple talks about the five-element lens, and cameras really need depth. That's why lenses sometimes are so thick. It's And the phones, they want to make super thin, and that creates a huge tension. Make the phone thinner, they have to make a worse camera. They're not going to do that. They did, they did a miracle of engineering with the iPhone 5 to get that 8-megapixel camera in there. And I don't think they could. I'm sure they tried. I don't think they could get it into a, a phone as thin as these. And like you said, that was a compromise they had to make. Yeah. Uh, well, it's not. There, you know, I presented three options. First would be use a camera that fits flush and has worse optics. Yes. I think that was out of the question because I believe a camera of that size not only would have, certainly would have had worse optics than the one they did include, but it might have even had worse optics probably would have had worse optics than the 5S Absolutely. or the 5C. And that's just unacceptable. They can't sell the high-end iPhone with a camera that's worse than the one from a year or two before. Uh, just, it, it, you know, it, un, in, in, inconceivable. There's no magic option to just magically make it happen. And I've seen it on Twitter, a handful of people on Twitter, who if Steve Jobs was there, he would have browbeat them into making a camera that was that thin enough and didn't sacrifice image quality. Well, I... That's not how it worked. <laughs> you know? yeah. He was a, you know, a great motivator, and he often drove people to do more than they could think they could. Uh, I don't think he could bend the laws of physics. And you know, they still do. They, you know, they do things like use Sony sensors. Mm -hmm. you know, they use components. They don't, the camera isn't entirely their own creation. They have like a Sony sensor in there, which already places a starting limit on how far away the lens has to be to, to uh, cover the whole sensor with an image. So I'm going to say that that was out. I think the choice came between um, doing what they did and having a bulge around the camera lens or making the whole device as thick as needed be to, to sit flush with the camera that they have. Yep. And then there, you know, make the battery a little thicker to, to take advantage of that extra space. Yeah, or they could have. And that's the thing that I've, a lot of people pushed back on my review about that they should have because that would have been better. There's, it still would have been thinner than the 5S. How is that not thin enough? 
And then battery life would have been better on both phones, you know, that this is folly on Apple's part because it would have been better for everybody because uh, a little bit that much more thickness wouldn't have mattered. It still would have been a thin phone and then battery life would have been better. It's it's really interesting because a lot of people when Apple went to the iPhone 5 and that was thinner than the iPhone 4S that, you know, just keep it the same as the 4S. I want more battery. But everything really is a trade off. And I think Apple is more cons- as as obsessed as they are with thinness and they, they've made an entirely new. Uh, backlight just to get it thinner. I think that is because it translates into weight. And I've got it, like I said, I've got a Lumia 1020 and that feels like a brick. And the Nexus 5 is about the same size and it feels, even though it's the same size, it feels so much smaller because it's lighter. And the iPhone 6 Plus felt smaller again than a lot of those phones or than the Galaxy Note. And I think Apple realized when they went big, one of their goals was to be light so that it didn't, it didn't end up feeling like a weaponized instrument in your hand. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it is like I wrote my review. It's heavier. The fi- the six is heavier than the five S, but it doesn't feel heavier yeah. because I think by you know by mass it's actually lighter. You know per 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 volume it's it's lighter. Even though overall it's it's actually a little heavier. And it's that illusion thing again too, because I, I had a chance to see a bunch of people using them during the week and. You look at it, then you look at your iPhone 5, and it's that same feeling as when you look back on an iPhone 4S now, and it looks like a stunted little iPhone mini. It's that once you see that because of the curves, because of the way that it's built, it just looks so much newer than the iPhone 5. And I think that whole thing combines together to make the big size more acceptable. Yeah. Um, I think it's reasonable, it's perfectly reasonable, to argue the side of they should have just made both phones a little thicker to let the camera sit flush and have put slightly bigger batteries in perfectly reasonable. I think it's not reasonable to argue that what Apple did choose to do is also reasonable and that Apple simply prioritizes thinness and weight a little bit more than other people do. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I believe the iPod touch, at least it was certainly designed uh, while Steve Jobs was still around in that ship. There was no... Right. no ban right. shipping that so i think you know that that's not a good yeah it, it, it's you know we're running out of time to say no actually uh steve jobs actually was there for that yeah. but that's the the protruding camera lens you can't say steve jobs never would have done it because he did he was there when the the ipod touch that has that was was uh was designed yeah uh i don't think people some people have said do they need to do they need to buy a case now because otherwise, if you put your phone flat on a table or something like that, the lens is going to get scratched. I don't think the lens is any more likely to get scratched than it was on the 5S because it's still a sapphire cover on the outside of the lens. Uh, and if anything, that the metal ring around it would be less likely to have the you know the lens actually touching the surface of the table that you're on. I don't know. It certainly doesn't make me want to put a case on it. I'm not worried about it. I was about to ask you that because in the iPod Touch, and I'm holding it right now, the ring goes a little bit further than the lens, so it does protect the lens. I I I forgot to check that. I think it does, but it's very slight. But I do think that given that it would thus be sitting at a slight angle, I think it means that the, you know... On a, on a perfectly flat table, I don't think any part of the lens would actually uh, would actually touch the table. So I, I think, if anything, it's a little bit less likely. And some people are worried about it not being flush when you put it down on its back on a table. But again, the iPod Touch, there's one corner that you can push at that makes it move yeah. a little bit, but it's solid. It does, yeah, it wiggles a little bit on a perfectly flat table, but it's, it doesn't bother me. Yeah. I mean, in theory, do I wish it were flush? Of course, but... Uh, 
you know, I, same thing with the lines for the antenna lines. You know, people are asking about those. You know, I, I didn't even mention them in the review. What are they're fine? I don't I don't think that they're bad. I don't think they're good. I mean, you know, there's always some kind of concession to the antenna in every single mm -hmm. phone. I mean, the original iPhone had a big black plastic thing on the bottom inch of it. You know, it's it, it's fine. Yeah. I don't know. My wife actually thinks it looks good on the gold ones. Almost like like the way that on like a handbag or like a woman's jacket or something like that the the pattern of the panel, you know, that sometimes at the seams of a piece of clothing or something like that are meant, you know, they're stitched in a different color, you know, that it looks something like that. So It's like Boba Fett. It's great. Yeah. <laughs> One last thing before we move away from the phones is I want to I want to hopefully this will show up on the audio. So I've got I've got three phones in front of me right now. The my 5S, the 6 and the 6 Plus. And I'm going to toggle the silent switch on and off holding it up against the microphone. So I'm going to start with the iPhone 5S. Could you hear that? Yep. All right. Now, here's the 6. Could you hear that? Yeah, that was much harder to hear, but I heard it. Much harder to hear. Lower, yep. right? So the 6 is a much quieter vibration. Now, here's the 6S. I mean, the 6 Plus. 6 Plus. Yeah. One, one more. It's way louder. Yeah. It's really, I'm just sitting here and I'm, I'm actually going to power this one down because I'm getting notifications and it's so loud, even sitting on my desk that I know that it, they're showing up in the audio for the show. It's a really loud silent switch, almost problematically show. And it even, I even double checked with Apple to make sure that I didn't get a unit with, you know, that was abnormal in that regard. And they said, no, it is a little bit louder. It's also way stronger. It's, it's like, there's no way you can miss it. I wonder if that's a concession to the idea that not as many people might pocket it, but they might put it in a bag or a purse or something. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's on purpose. Yeah, I, maybe that is true. I, I I don't know. But I'm surprised more people haven't commented on it in the initial reviews because it is a real difference, especially compared to the regular 6, which is even quieter than previous iPhones. Huh, that's interesting. It's almost to the point where it's like, I don't even think you'd call it silent mode. You'd call it vibrate mode because it's it's not silent. In, in a room, I almost wonder, like, in a room with, you know, if there was, like, a meeting uh, and people put their phones in front of them, you know, that it's it's going to be almost problematic that, that it, you know, bzz, bzz. Yeah, a lot of boardrooms are going to have trouble. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, let me take one last break here and thank our last sponsor. Uh, last but not least, our good friends at Hover. Hover is the best domain name registrar in the world. I say that without hesitation. That's not their description of them. That's mine. Uh, you want to get a new domain name, go to hover.com. It's the best. Uh, and it's funny thinking about domain names because I have, I, you know, last few I've registered have not been at .com. I have very few that are .com. And I've always thought, hey, .com is all used up. There's no way you're going to get anything on .com. You got to go to some kind of new top-level domain. And then our, our new friend Jason Snell just registered... Uh, sixcolors.com still good names available even at .com still good names especially if you put two words together great name for a new site sixcolors.com your whatever you want to do you know go to hover they'll help you search they'll help you find awesome domain names that are still available um they have all the big top level domains uh 
a whole bunch of all these crazy new ones like dot guru and dot club and uh, dot coffee. Uh, they've got me. I mean, you name it, they've got it. Uh, you can go there and do it. And it's no hassle, no spam, no junk, no trying to upsell you on things that aren't even related to domain names, really good user interface for managing it. And the most amazing thing at all unique in the whole industry is their free valet transfer service. So if you've got domains registered since the 90s at three or four different registrars all over the internet, um, or even if you have all your domains at one registrar, but it's a registrar you're not happy with, which is very, very likely if it's not Hover, you sign up at Hover, go to their free valet transfer service, and they will transfer you to an expert, someone who does this as their full-time job. You give them your credit, you know, your information for the registrar or registrars where your domains already are, and they'll just go and move them all to Hover and make sure all the DNS still works, any websites that they're connected to still work, that the mail records, that everything just happens seamlessly, and that all these little finicky details, uh, managing the time to live and, and all this stuff, you don't have to worry about any of it. Just let Hover take care of it, and then all of a sudden, they'll all be moved over and Everything will be better because Hover is better. Um, some registrars even purposefully make it hard to move your domain names away from them. Hover knows all their tricks. They'll help get around them. They know all the tricks, and they'll do it. With things that you wouldn't even think to know, they know how to do it. And it's free. It's free. You don't have to pay extra. It's not like, well, all right, you sign up for the Hover at a reasonable price, but then if you want to use this valet service, you have to pay a couple hundred bucks or something. No, free. It's free. And they do it because that's how confident they are that once you sign up for Hover, you're going to be a customer for life. Uh, all sorts of new things. They have volume discounts on domain renewals. So if you have more, a lot of domains, you can get a volume discount with just 10, um, 10 domains at a time. Review them all, re renew them all in bulk, and you'll save money. Uh, you can get your own custom email. Um, all sorts of great stuff. Cannot recommend them. Uh, highly enough. Anybody who's not using them should. If you have a new name for a, a new idea for a domain name, go sign up for them and start. Here's what you can do. You get 10% off your first purchase in addition to all the great stuff. Honestly, you don't even need a discount to switch to Hover, but you'll get 10% off if when you go to hover.com and you make a purchase, type the promo code for this show, which in the current campaign is the word chowder. C-H-O-W-D-E-R, as in a in-joke reference to, to claim chowder. Go to hover.com, sign up, and you'll save 10% on your first purchase using the code word, promo code, I guess, not really a code word, chowder. So my thanks to Hover. Uh, awesome, awesome domain name registrar and longtime friend of the show. Man, we still have iOS 8 to talk about. I, I say skip the rest of the event. I'll to cover that on, on future shows. Seriously, we just don't have time. Before we get to iOS 8, though, I guess we could talk about Apple Pay. Yep. And I'm wondering what, what you think about that. Uh, it's really interesting because I have NFC everywhere around me. Sears takes it. McDonald's takes it. The gas stations take it. It's just 
it's everywhere. So I have both my credit cards have little NFC um, sticker on them, like the printing on them. And you you go up and you tap the gas pump, you tap the cash register, and it just works. And it's it's great. And the idea of having that on my iPhone, so I don't. My only concern with it is if I ever drop my card, you know, someone can pick it up and go start tapping for gas or tapping for food, and it'll take a while before I realize it. So having it on my phone is hugely appealing because I don't have to carry those credit cards with me. I don't have to worry about dropping them. And because they're doing it in such a secure way where they're encrypting everything, they're they're putting it on the the secure um not the secure the secure element and they're doing this one time credit card number, it's it's even better than the convenience that I already have with NFC. So I'm really excited. Yeah, I think it's one of those cases where what Apple said is exactly the truth, and there's no reason to be cynical about it. But Tim Cook's explanation that, look, everybody's tried to do this before, and they've all fallen short. And the reason they've fallen short is that they've come up with schemes that are built around their own self-interest. In other words, I think, because they want to make a lot of money on it. Uh, and Apple, rather than approaching it as, let's look at it from the perspective of the customer and just make their experience better and let the fallout come after that. They're going to make money on this. There's no doubt that Apple, you know, this isn't saying that Apple's doing it for free and, you know, all the money's passing through without them getting it. But they're not making a lot per transaction. They're taking a tiny little sliver of the transactions. And they're not asking retailers to install an Apple backend system. They're not asking retailers to install Apple's, you know, proprietary iPhone only uh, thing at the register. It's an industry standard. It's already in hundreds of thousands of locations. They're just making it work easier than anybody else has. And it's really just, I, I think primarily, just about making it another way that it's nicer to own an iPhone than it is to own any other phone. That's the main advantage to Apple. It's not about the fraction of a penny per transaction that they're going to make. Although, I'm, you know, they'll keep that money. Uh, I think it's primarily a way to just, you know, it's, you know, why do they sweat uh, over the details of putting in a higher 400 pixel per inch display in the iPhone 6? Because it's nicer for mm -hmm. customers. Uh, you know, I think that's what Apple Pay is all about. And I therefore think, and I mean this, I don't think, you know, I think there's some people who are going to roll their eyes, but I think it's it's win, win, win. It's good for Apple because they will make some money on this and it will make iPhones a little bit stickier as, as something that people, are, once they have it, they're going to want to keep buying them. I think it's good for customers because I think it's an amazing experience and we got to play with it. Like they did have, they had like play red, you know, play registers set up at, at the hands-on area. It's if anything, their demo video in the, in the keynote undersold how easy it is. It, it's really, really convenient. Uh, and then it's good for the retailers. Apple isn't charging them like some kind of crazy 70, 30 split. They're not asking for an exorbitant amount of money. Um, they did get preferential treatment in terms of getting the rate that was there for when the, you know, the card present rate, mm -hmm. as opposed to the card, not present rate. Um, but I think that's fair and reasonable that they're saying, Hey, touch ID combined with the security measures we've taken is the equivalent of card present. It's, you know, just a little bit more likely that this is not a fraudulent transaction, you know, that they're not getting charged the rate that gets charged when you just read your credit card number to somebody over the phone, which is where you don't get card present because they don't see that you have the card. 
It, um, it reminds me of that piece you wrote after WWDC called Only Apple, because yeah. if you think back to when Google tried to do this, it's almost, it was almost like when they tried to do TV, is that they didn't get buy-in, they couldn't get things past carriers, some carriers blocked it, some carriers wanted to use their own, because they have their own, used to be called ISIS, I forget what they renamed it, their own solution for these things, and they just they just couldn't get it deployed. And Apple, because they make everything from the chip to the secure enclave and the, the secure... Um, I forget what the, the name for it is, Secure Element, all yes, the way up girl. to the OS and to the hardware. It's better than having the credit card present because, again, I can just drop my NFC card and someone else can pick it up and go tap things. There's no password. There's nothing required. This needs my passcode or my fingerprint. And that, I think, makes it... I, I heard a, a rumor that it was after Target and after you know after a lot of the credit card breaches that the, the industry started listening to Apple. They weren't as receptive beforehand. Yeah. And I think it's really telling that they had launch partners, like they demoed the Target app and the Apple store app and it's not just this thing that you can use in registers they because again only apple they have the apps they made a solution that works on the phone in physical real world stores that works online with apps and that works based on a a physical skin connection with the watch and that that is a very robust solution yeah it's very very true um uh and, you know, like I said, win, win, win. The retailers are happy to use it. The banks are happy to use it because they're so, they seem so confident that, you know, what Apple's come up with is going to increase security. And fraud is such a, a, a huge time and cost and PR sink for the banks and for retailers, right? I mean, you know, uh, the, the Target CEO lost his job over the debacle that, that happened to them last year. It's a real problem. This seems like, you know, if it works as advertised, is a completely credible solution. Um, and it so it really is, it, it's better for every party involved. Nobody's paying any sort of, there's no trade-off for anybody. As opposed to something like, let's just compare it to the 70-30 split for on-device content that's sold on, on the phones. I think that's, you know... It, it, there's a you know years long argument that hey that's too much you know that you know Barnes and Noble shouldn't have to spend you know or can't you know afford thirty percent margins because they're paying you know uh, they're paying the same agency model for books that anybody else is um, you know should Amazon let Kindle you know use in app purchases no why don't they you know there's all sorts of arguments to be made there where where the 70 30 split depending on your perspective may not be in the interest of whoever's selling the goods there's no there's no downside like that with apple pay it really is better for everybody and there was some confusion because some people thought that the 70 30 split would it would be like, for example if amazon like the amazon app used it not the one for the kindle store but for the actual buying goods but the 70 30 was never for physical goods it was always for the digital distribution goods within apps so they're fine any target everyone can adopt this and all they're doing is the apple pay yeah, yeah. um so last segment and, and i want to keep it short because i don't want to just regurgitate your excellent excellent ios 8 review which anybody who's listening to the show if you haven't I'll put it in the show notes, but go read it. It is long. It is 20,000 words. It is booklet length, but it is worth it. And it's, uh, to me, definitive. Um, What are the the things, the little things in iOS 8 that you think people are most likely to overlook? Like what, you know, a couple of things that people who listen to the show maybe think that they're tuned into what's new in iOS 8. They've seen, you know, the keynote at WWDC, uh, but that are like, oh, I didn't know about that. 
mean, I think there's two. One is really big and, and some are really small. The really big thing is because there's names like extensibility and there's all sorts of different things like widgets and um, action, custom actions, custom keyboards, custom sharing items. But when you come down to it, the, the huge transformation for me with between iOS 7 and iOS 8 is that entirely reversed the, before everything was pull, if you wanted to do something, you had to leave what you were doing, go to another app. For example, just sending a voice memo, you had to leave messages, go to the voice memo app, create a voice memo, bring up the embedded message sheet, and then use that to send it through messages, then go back to messages and continue your conversation. And it's like, it was like that for so many things things. If you wanted to share a URL um, in, an, in a non-integrated app like Google+, you'd have to go to the web, copy the URL. One password, you have to launch one password, copy the password, come out. And now everything, it, the model is so much more towards push data, where from interactive notifications, you can keep playing your game, keep watching your movie, quickly answer um, a message. You pull down notification center, the widget's right there. The Android model was always old century to me because you had to leave, go to the home screen, page through the home screen, find the widget. It really didn't save you that much time. Being in notification center saves you so much time. Storehouse, uh, now you don't have to go to storehouse and then you know open up the, the image picker and choose images. You can be in photos. You can use filters in there. You can use like the sharing options. So many aspects of iOS now bring the stuff to you where you are. And that is such a fundamental change to how I'm using my iPhone. And I think uh, Federico did a great job explaining that too, that it's, I don't want to call it revolutionary because I think that's over, overused, but just the change in workflow has made it less of a chore. It's made it much more, much, it's made the device work for me much more than it ever has before. Yeah. Um, it almost, it, it, it's like the way that, to me, that they oh, broke down the Unix, you know, and we're talking 40-year-old Unix multitasking model to a lower level with the original iPhone in 2007, which was, you know, panned far and wide by people for not supporting multitasking, which was held up by the ignorant as sort of, you know, like it's sort of a baby OS that can't do multitasking. Whereas anybody with any sort of clue would realize, well, they started with Mac OS X, which was Unix. They took multitasking out, right? This isn't like Mac OS was back in the 90s or Palm OS or something like that, where there was a non-multitasking operating system that grew to a point where they had to add it or glom it well, on or start over Well, not to interrupt you, but somewhere. that original demo with Steve Jobs, when he showed playing music, the phone rang, the music faded away, he answered the phone, he went to the web, he went to email, he went... That blew right. people's minds who knew multitasking at the time. Right. And there were things that did multitask. Um but there were a lot of others that didn't and that, you know, you'd hit the home button and the app would exit. And, you know, when you relaunched it, it would start all over again. That was all based on the constraints, the incredible constraints of the device with limited RAM and a limited, uh, you know, a CPU that's 85 times less powerful mm -hmm. than the one we have in the iPhone six. Um, but it was also, you know, not just those technical constraints, but I think it was a reimagining of the user experience of a personal computer that could You'd want to do things like respond to a text message while you're watching a video. Uh, and that they've built it back up with XPC in a way that 
really makes a ton of sense. And you don't even have to think about it too much from a user's perspective, right? It's just there. Just Here's a notification from Renee uh, asking what time the show's going to start tonight. And I'm watching a Yankees game. You just pull it down a little bit and respond right there. And I didn't have to interrupt the, the, the video stream. Uh, but at the same time, solves so many problems from a typical user's perspective of what can happen with the traditional multitasking, where everything just gets to run and runs forever uh, of Unix, where you know your whole thing can get slowed down because everything's running in the background unchecked. And th not even to mention the security and privacy uh, issues. It's incredibly, or, you know, the same thing, you're on a website, and you want to quickly check the score, you can just pull down notification center and the score is in there and you just put it back up, you go right back to where you're doing, which is a change. The multitasking was great. You could tap a notification, you go right to the app, but then to get back to where you were, you'd have to leave that app, double tap if you remember to do that, go back to the fast app picker, take the app you had, or if you wanted to switch to another app, it was just, it was not ideal. And yeah. the other advantage too, like the security, the privacy, that's enormous because if you're answering a message in the Facebook app, Facebook has no idea what you're typing and that is completely separate. But if, for example, if, if you have a Facebook notification in another app and Facebook is being a memory hog and Jetsum gets rid of it, that notification is completely independent. You'll still be typing your message or answering your notification. You'll never even notice what's happening with the container app in the background. And that's a huge reliability boon. Yeah, the re I, I, maybe the best layman's term way to think about extensions and, and these things is that they really are like mini apps that mm -hmm. run in their own little mini sandbox. Yeah, and it's, it takes an explicit user action to punch through that, which is a great way yep. of doing it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what else? Anything else that's sort of like a easily overlooked, wow, I can't believe uh, that sort of thing? You know, I can't. I, I didn't know about that. Uh, there's a lot of, of really nice things. For example, if you're in Safari and you go to iCloud tabs, um, you can you can get you can close iCloud tabs on other devices from the device that you're using, which is. I did not know that. See, now that's why I had you on the show. <laughs> it's, that is a feature I've wanted ever since they invented iCloud tabs. I mean, there's so many things they're filling in. I also love that you can go to the settings and go to the settings for any app and you go into them and there's a tab for notifications there and a tab for privacy there. You know, yeah. maybe I don't, I don't know how to find that. And they made it easy for developers to get to that. But I just go there and I can see what this has permission for and I can turn them on or turn them off. Explain to me, because this here's something I'm confused about. Explain to me user versus remote notifications, which is a new distinction that didn't exist before, and now it does. So, I, I mean, I'm, I'm not a developer, so you know, I'm, I needed like a Brent Simmons type explanation for this. But my understanding is right now you're automatically opted into the, the remote notifications. And what that does is things like background refresh. So a developer can send a, a, a silent notification, in essence, to tell your app that there's new content to download or there's a new messages or a new timeline to pull in. And it'll just go and do that in the background. And you're automatically opted into that. You can choose to go and opt out of it, but they just want that to work. They don't want any confusion. And that is now separate from the user-facing notifications like a message notification or a, a reminder or an invitation or something. Hmm. Um, Third-party keyboards, have you tried any of them? Yeah, I've tried several of them. Um, they work in the same way. The, you, you download an app. Uh, the app 
The only problem with the, the third-party keyboards is that they're not as easy uh, to install. When you download a widget, for example, you pull down Notification Center, it tells you there's a new widget, you tap the edit button, you can add it right there. The keyboards, they don't tell you there's a new keyboard. So you can download it, you go to the key, you pull up the keyboard, there's no indicator that says there's a new keyboard available. They have to either tell you in the app or you have to know to go to settings, keyboards, add third-party keyboard, and then enable it. And also, because the container apps are so small, if you have a really hefty keyboard with a lot of predictive text engines or something, that has to stay in the container app. So you have to grant it access. Uh, there's a grant full access button on the keyboards, and it has to be able to you know talk back and forth with its app to do a lot of the higher level stuff. Yeah, it doesn't. I have to say that doesn't seem appealing to me at all. It's a little buggy uh, as well because it'll sometimes it'll revert to the wrong keyboard. So it's not it's not perfect yet. But it's this is extensibility. I'd say extensibility zero point nine, verging on one yeah. point There's just so much stuff and it's such a fundamental change that I can't even imagine how many bugs they're squashing even as it's shipping. What's your take on QuickType? QuickType is the new predictive text thing where it shows a couple of words above the keyboard. It takes like an extra row of keys above the keyboard instead of just showing you one suggestion in line where you're typing. I still have to, I've been using it since, I installed it the first day, WWDC. I think you laughed at me when I saw you at the bar later. <laughs> I did. <laughs> but I like that. I like, to, I like to see where it is almost immediately and force myself to use it. And I still don't remember to use it because I'm so used to typing the traditional yeah. way on an iPhone. Yeah. Yep, that's exactly me. I, I almost don't have an opinion on it because I don't even look at it because I just type the way I've always typed and my habits are so ingrained. But there's two changes to iOS that makes me feel old in a way. And one is that there's so many people, especially who use non-iOS devices who are used to Swift Key or Swipe, and they really wanted it. And, and Apple's keyboard yeah. was outdated um, in that regard. But also you take something like iMessage and you know, as much as we, you, know, you or me or Guy might tease... Um, Ben Thompson about using line and using like having whole conversations and stickers. There's a whole generation of people who instant messaging is really instant. Like you touch something and it goes and it makes me so nervous because Apple's doing that now. And for arbitrary text strings, they can't do that because they don't know when you're finished typing. But if you hit like location in the message thing, it just goes. If you hit, um, if you, if you use that new, the radial interface to make a voice message, you just slide up. It doesn't populate the field and then let you hit send like, you know, someone afraid like I would do. It just goes. So the instance becomes yeah. so fast. It does that with the images too yeah. when you send an attachment. You, you pick the image and say, use this image, and then it just sends the message. It doesn't sit there in the text field as a message waiting for you to hit a send bu- second send button. So, And it's also ephemeral now, almost like like uh, Snapchat where it'll, by default, it'll expire in two minutes unless you say keep it. And then it'll tell the other person your message has been kept or they've stopped doing it. They're, they're, they're being very transparent in what's being done and where, and I think yeah. that's good. Yeah, I'm curious to see how the sound bites play out because I have I've had it on a beta phone all summer, but I haven't really had a chance to use it because the sound bites don't really work unless everybody's on iOS eight. If you if you send one to somebody who's still on iOS seven or on another device, they just get like a audio file attachment which they can click and play, but it's it it sounds like you're giving them a shit sandwich. <laughs> you know, you're you're giving them a, a a word a doc file instead of just typing out your email. But with everybody on iOS 8, if you're, you know, your correspondent is on iOS 8, then they can play it. Just They can just play it by lifting the phone to their ear. Yeah, it's great. On the lock screen, too, I, Clayton and I were playing with this a little while ago. You send a message, and it shows up, and it says lift to listen. So you pull it up, and you listen to the message, and then you can record another message, and you put it down, and it sends it. And it becomes almost like a walkie-talkie, just slinging these yeah. sound bites back and forth. Yeah. Uh, the one last thing before we wrap up is – and, and – uh, 
the fast contacts didn't make sense to me at uh, I at WWDC. This is now when you go into multitasking, you double tap home. And above your multitasking windows, there's a row of your recent recipients or contacts. Uh, just seemed weird to me, like they were just shoving something into empty space. All of a sudden, it makes a little bit more sense to me with that communication button on the Apple Watch. Because yes. it's the same thing. It's like, we're going to make it really easy to just sort of very quickly, no matter what you're currently doing, uh, somehow communicate with the people who you communicate with most frequently. Both iOS 8 and the watch seem to be a concerted effort to make logging, authentication, uh, remote control, and communications really work well and work quickly. There was, in the earlier versions, those contacts were there all the time. And I thought, you know, maybe that's not good for privacy if you didn't want everyone glancing at who you were talking to, especially if you had complicated relationships. You can hide those now. But if, if you're fine with that, you have both your favorites and your recents, and you tap those and you can instantly FaceTime them, call them, message them. It's Once you get used to it, it's super quick. We're running up against a two-hour mark. We could go on for another two hours, um, but that's why they make next week's show. <laughs> Uh, Renee Ritchie at imore.com. Uh, do you want to shout out some of your podcasts? Uh, sure. I do a podcast called Debug with Guy English. I do one called Iterate with Mark um, Edwards and Seth Clifford. And with uh, our mutual friend Dave Whiskus and Guy, I do um, Vector and Review. Too many damn shows. I can't even remember them. Yeah. I wasn't going to let you list them all. No, I just got to stop you know. myself. Uh, but you can go ahead. Uh, nope, those are all good friends, and those are all good shows. You're, you're. I feel like back to back having Snell and then you. <laughs> I've got the two hardest working podcasters who still manage to write thousands of words a week. Back to back shows, so I, I got to have somebody lazy on next week. I'm so happy um, about uh, Jason and his new site, Six Colors, and his new podcast uh, upgrade. It's because he's making a lot of content again, and I love the content that he makes. Yeah, there's just so much. It's so so funny because summer can be so slow, and then all of a sudden, so much happens, and it's like uh, the whole Mac World thing and the Snell thing. We could go on forever. Uh, never even brought up the whole stupid Markdown thing from two weeks ago. Never even mentioned it. Uh, you and I hardly have even broached the the watch. Uh, it's you know it's too much. There's so much to talk about. The next you know by the time we're done talking about it, we'll be out there for the next event in October. <laughs> Anyway, Renee, thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, uh, talk to you soon. Yep.